CNN's Chris Cuomo in a recent program was telling viewers that America does not need God, that what we need is within us. He says, if you believe in one another and if you do the right thing for yourself and your community, things will get better in this country. You do not need help from above. It's within us, he said, pointing his finger to the sky. Let's get real on one of the toughest questions in apologetics of why do I need God? And you are listening to the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg. Thank you for tuning in. As I mentioned to you last week, we were going to deal with a very, very difficult question about the whole question. And I'm speaking just in the generic sense here. Why do I need God? You know, this question of why do I need God, the fuddle uh, thinkers today, you know, so when somebody says, you know, why do I need God? You know, folks, this is not a question of necessity for many people. They might be thinking, you know, hey, my life is great. My job is going well. I can honestly say my job is going great now that I'm out of the car business. You know, why do I need God? Why are you, as a minister of the gospel, claiming that I need God? Why are you claiming as a minister of the gospel? Why are you bothering me? You know, you might hear some of these things. You know, you know, we could take this illustration and, and look at it from this perspective. You know, this question illustrates someone going like going to a doctor and the doctor tells you that you need to take these pills, but there's nothing wrong with you. So you ask the doctor why you need to take the pills. And the doctor tells you that you need to take them because it makes you better than what you are right now. But you say, well, there's nothing wrong with me, so why should I take them? Now, what I want to share with you, I'm going to be putting on my blog. So I'm going to try and keep it within the scope, but I'm going to probably go well over the 35 minutes or 30 minutes that I want to allot myself because of the importance of this subject. So this is about the question, why do I need God? Now, for starters, I want to let you know that you and I probably need to come to the understanding that truth does matter. Truth is, is that which corresponds to reality, and truth should matter for each and every one of us. Yet, at the same time, I don't want you and I to confuse this question with the ideas of physical contentment versus spiritual contentment. Because just because you are feeling physically fine, it does not mean that you are doing fine spiritually. You know, folks, if God does exist... It has, this question has serious implications on how you, you and I should live our lives. And I believe it will have serious implications on how you and I relate to things in our life. You see, if God is relational, and I believe He is, He wants you to be relational with Him. And let's not mistake the rejection. I know that atheists like to uh, say, you know, freedom from religion, but let's not mistake the rejection of God as freedom from worshiping anything. You know, everybody worships something. So what do we mean by worship? Well, simply stated, I'm going to try, like I said, I'm trying to keep these uh, thoughts, you know, in 
in perspective here. Worship is essentially paying reverence and honor and dignity to what you deem as having merit in your life. Also, it is that which you value in your life or something that you deem as worthy of devotion of your time. You know, there are some ways that worship manifests itself. You know, take for example, like when you don't want to because your worshiping doesn't do anything for you. That what you're worshiping doesn't do anything for you. You know, you can say that uh, I don't want to worship something because worship doesn't do anything for me. You know, that which I'm worshiping is inanimate. It doesn't do anything for me. Another way of looking at it is somebody who might be, you know, these are like uh, teenagers today with the Che Guevara t-shirts, you know, they're worshiping a dictator. You know, if that dictator ever came into power, you know, I don't think they would be bowing down to Che Guevara or any other dictator for that matter. You don't bow down to them. So then there is also worshiping the silent object. The silent object, like, for example, the car or uh, those things that don't give anything back to you. Worship can also manifest itself in a way of expressing gratitude, which is kind of the Christian perspective. It is when you really want to worship something because you are grateful for what that God has done for you. In other words, the object of your worship will transform your life because your whole life is oriented around that very object of worship. You know, Picture, if you will, somebody that you idolize. The question is not the God you worship as it is there who many draw attention to, like, say, for example, hero worship. This may be a professional athlete or a top goal scorer or a home run hitter or anything, something along that lines. Maybe even a, a musician or a guitar player or a movie star that plays, the, plays with a, a lightsaber. You know, it doesn't really matter. The question then becomes, what if that person or that superstar or that actor or whatever uh, gets hurt, injured, or, or retires? Somebody else is going to have to come along and score the goals, f fill the shoes of the actor. Somebody else is going to have to come along and make the touchdowns, do the tries if you're a rugby fan. Here's the thing. That sports idol... Where are they at in life? You see, we all worship something. When things go, do not go right, what happens then? You know that you and I will always worship something. It's inescapable. We can't escape that. So the, now the next question I want to deal with is, okay, you, I, I get worship, Rob. Um, what does worship look like? What does it mean to worship? You know, some people worship success. I was in the car business 16 and a half years, and I was pretty successful at it, though I didn't make tons and tons of money towards the tail end. I did pretty well in the very beginning. That's because the industry had changed. So that's one of the reasons why I get out of it, by the way, too. Anyway, some people worship money in the car business and whatever type of sales business, because the more money you have, the more you're not going to spend, because what you're doing is you're spending time going and making that money and not having taken time to be able to go out and buy things. But you worship money. Some people worship appearance. Some people worship hairstyles, clothes, or the type of car that they own. 
you see when it's all said and done, people seek to find a fulfillment in these quote-unquote small-g gods. And when these small-g gods have failed them, they feel tormented inside. The Bible tells us that where your treasure is, there, is your, there your heart will also be also. And, and then if I can take an illustration from uh, a movie, a movie that I don't really watch a whole lot of, but I think it's a great illustration from a Harry Potter movie, and, and it's about the mirror of Aristad. And as that said mirror, according to Albus Dumbledore, he said this, shows the most desperate desire of a person's heart, a vision that has been known to drive men mad. And our pursuit to find meaning and purpose in life, we will fill our lives of, with full of things that can ultimately drive us mad. So the question is, what is in your mirror? It's like the question, what is in your pocket? But what is in your mirror? What God would be looking back at you? Would you be surprised? Would you be shocked? Or would you be disappointed? For some of us, the image in the mirror looks back at us only to, for us to find out that the one in the mirror is the one that, that we wrestle with the most. So why do we worship God? You see, we all worship something. And when our worship is directed toward the one true God, there will be nothing else as accepting and forgiving and loving, even though you have not succeeded. It was St. Augustine who said, You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until we find our rest in thee. So, We've talked about worship. We've talked about, you know, the very beginning parts of this, that you and I will worship something. Let's talk about it from the perspective of identity and who are we. How do you define yourself? How do you know who you are? I believe it was in the 90s. There was a song uh, by the rock group Goo Goo Dolls who, in, in their lyrics, in their song Iris, that were very telling. They said this, and I don't want the world to see me because I don't think they'd understand. When everything's made to be broken, I just want you to know who I am. Everybody is looking to go and find their identity. So the question is, who are you? How do you define yourself? What you do does not define who you are. But who are you? Is it based on how successful you have been? Is it based on achieving a particular goal? The problem about identity in this world today is that without God, it is based on something that you do or based on a, a subjective set of standards. And the problem then becomes when something changes or something changes, or well, like, for example, the criteria of something changing, what then? And the problem comes when something changes. Who are you then? Again, let's go back to the athletes. Take the athletes once again. Superstars get hurt during their careers. Who are they then? Now there is a new goal scorer. How do you define now yourself because your hero has fallen? Even more of a question is how do we define those who are born with physical and intellectual debilities. 
What is the identity of those, say, with Down syndrome or a severe case of autism, like a severely autistic child? What is the identity of somebody like that? After all, they're not the football star. So do they not have an identity? What about if we could take the identity out of the hands of people and give it back to God? Think about that for just a moment. What would God say? He would say that your identity has intrinsic value. He would say that it has intrinsic value to him and within you. Now, what does intrinsic mean? Well, intrinsic means that that which relates to your nature and was a part of you before you had a chance to earn it or were even created. So unlike your actions, which are manifestations of your character and your personality and strengths and weaknesses, and you, your identity does not change with God. So what is it that does not change? You know, you and I are created in the image of God. And in this, this image is inherent in you, which means that it is permanent, it is essential, it is inseparable, and there is nothing that you can do to alter it. It is the image of the one who you were created to resemble. The image means that we were created in his shadow or his likeness, that we have characteristic qualities of him. Let me explain. So if God is love, we should be loving. If God is relational, you and I should be relational. If God is intelligent, you and I should have some intelligence. If God is moral, we should be morally responsible for what we do as compared to animals. Because of the image of God, we can say that we are not a mistake. No matter what somebody else has ever told you, no matter what you have to even told yourself, Every intricate detail and piece of complexity of your body is not a mistake. In fact, you are a masterpiece in the eyes of the God that created you, and it is the very image of God that separates humans from animals. The image of God is what makes us different. We are the signature of God's design. In his book, Straw Dogs, Thoughts on Humans and Other Animals, the atheist John Gray says, Once we have relinquished Christianity, the idea of person becomes suspect. But interestingly enough, as an atheist, John Gray recognizes this whole idea on person and the fact that everybody has some type of personhood. Why is it so significant to you about this whole idea of identity? Is it because God exists and that you are inextricably and masterfully created by God, the Creator Himself? Your identity is not given to you. It is inherent within you, and any identity that you or society creates will never compare to what God, and what God has created and how beautiful God sees you. Ravi Zacharias, who I lovingly call Ravi G because he was my mentor, has says this, You will never find meaning to be meaningful until you find out the purpose for which you were created. God has given you the grandest dignity, and he does this by telling you that you were created in the image 
of God. Let's talk about meaning and purpose. Meaning and purpose. Now, I want to let you know that without God, life has no meaning. And why is that? Well, it is because it would make no difference for why humans or the universe existed. There is no goal to this life if there is no meaning. Mankind becomes the blind product of time plus matter plus chance. Christian philosopher and Christian apologist William Lane Craig once said, the universe it's, itself carries no intrinsic meaning and no intrinsic meaning and meaning that has not been given to it. It has been given to it by somebody, and that somebody is God. The universe will end. Ever think of that? Mankind will ultimately end. So it makes no ultimate difference if, if it ever existed in the mind of the atheist. The end of everything ultimately is death in the mind of the atheist, and there is no meaning. We are just blind products of chance, according to the atheists, according to the atheistic worldview. What does it matter, they would say? It does not matter that you create what you think if there is no God. It does not change what, <clears throat> what Bertrand Russell has said, that man is a product of causes which had no, provi no provision of the end they were achieving that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but an outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. He said that in his book, Man's Free Worship. So, like John Gray, Bertrand Russell, I believe, are right if there is no God. At least they are consistent with their atheistic philosophy and on a philosophy that basically says here today and gone tomorrow. When I speak to atheists on the subject of meaning, they tell me that they have meaning and, and it does not need to have an objective source. But they'll also go on to say that they have meaning because they are continually using experiences to find a way to have a final source for meaning. But folks, even those experiences change. And I even mentioned that the loneliest moment in life is when you experience that which you thought would deliver you the ultimate, and I'll put meaning right after that, has let you down. But see, folks, meaning cannot be based on a subject of experience. See, a lot of times people will, um, will say that, uh, you know, atheism will provide meaning. You know, one psychologist has gone and said, stop living your life like there is no meaning. Just pretend that we have it. Just pretend we have something. But that is not the case. What would God say to all of this? What would God say to the whole idea about meaning and purpose for our life? Is there a meaning and purpose in life where meaning and purpose in life is, is, is where is that found? Well, the Christian definition of meaning and purpose in life is to glorify God and then worship Him and enjoy Him forever. We are to experience the love of God. We are to experience His creation so that we have someone to thank. A lot of people today live their lives in a way that they have no one, uh, they have a lot to be thankful for, but they have no one to be grateful to. 
When you know your meaning, you can understand your purpose and knowing why you were created in the first place. At some point in time, human enthrallment on this earth will find its limit. And when it does, only a limitless God will still bring amazement, wonder, love, and truth, and thereby enable man to experience this life with such intense intensity as it was intended to be. You see, without God, how do you come up with your meaning and purpose in life? Sure, you and I are free to make it up as we go, but does that what does that do for you? What have you done, uh, uh, what you've made up? Are you finding your meaning in what you've made up? And what does it do for you? How has what you have created defined what you are determined for? So up to this point, we have talked about identity and meaning of purpose. Now let's look at the whole category of morality. We've talked about identity We've talked about meaning and purpose. Now let's talk about morality and why do we need God? What do we do with this whole idea of morality? Well, the idea of morality or the moral laws, the Achilles heel of the atheist. How do you look at things like the atrocities over Western civilization? We see the atrocities happening all over the world even today. We can think back in Western civilization and think of things like that were done by Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Genghis Khan, Adeki Tojo. We can look at all of those things, and we think of all of them, and we think of the atrocities of, say, like the Nazi doctor, Joseph Mengele, with his, with his experiments with Jewish children and his vivisections on live women. And in case you do not know what a vivisection is, it is dissecting a woman uh, while she is alive. And that's what Joseph Mengele did. Should that not bother us? And why should it bother us if there is no moral standard? Is it because that we believe that there is such a thing as certain things that are right and wrong? You know, as a Christian, I believe in objective morality. And the problem for the non-Christian is that they have to offer an explanation on one where morals come from. And for a naturalistic explanation, the only things that exist are only those things that science can test. But I got a rude awakening for you. Science cannot test morality. Science can only show how we can send a monkey to the moon, but science cannot tell us if we should send the monkey to the moon. Morals, according to the naturalistic and atheist professor Michael Ruse, are nothing more of than illusions, where he says that they are a collective illusion. But if morality is an illusion, why do we have so many human rights groups today responding to all these issues that we hear about? Does an illusion beckon an action within us? Is an illusion going to drive us halfway around the world to fight for injustices for the sake of our own lives? And can an illusion really do those things? You see, if there is no objective morality, how do we decide what is right and what is wrong? What criteria do we use to determine right action from wrong action? Now, I know that atheists will say it's for the good of society. Well, 
you can turn that on its head. You see, if society determines what is good and what is right and what is wrong, let's use the evil actions against an innocent human being. Let's say that the evil actions against a human being is not good for society, and I would agree. But see, here's the thing. I could turn that if the atheist says that it is not good for society. You know, at least they're consistent. But the big problem is that evil actions can be good for society if the subjective, uh, frame, uh, subjective framework was turned around. And of course, this whole thing on the society determining what is good, which society, which society, a society that eats its children or, or loves its children, and a society that eats its neighbors or loves their neighbors. I like what Ravi Zacharias used to say, in, in some cultures they love their neighbors, in other cultures they eat them, both on personal preferences, because it's the societal standard. Do you have a personal preference? So... The reason why we say as Christians that this is wrong is because there is an objective objective standard of value to these children's lives. Um, say, for example, when you take a look at the, uh, the things that are going on with some of the terrorist groups like Boko Haram or Al-Qaeda or even human trafficking for that matter, what do you do with those? Why do people get upset? about human trafficking if they don't believe in God, if they don't believe in an objective moral standard. Why did they get involved? Why did they get so upset about this? The offenders that do these things think it's objectively right in their eyes. This is a problem that you and I run into if there is no objective morality. And so again, I just say that we say it's wrong because as Christians there is an objective moral value to these children's lives. These offenders may see it differently, but if there is no objective morality, how can we tell them that they're wrong? On what grounds do we have to tell them that they are, what they're doing is wrong? And the grave problem with this is that we cannot tell them what they're doing is wrong if there is no standard by which to determine and agree that there is an objective morality to say that they're doing what is wrong. We could also look like someone who could just tell them to stop, but you know what? Um... That, that's not going to work. You see, in this scenario, the only thing that we have is that nobody is intervening and nobody is able to take action. What kind of world would that become if we were to embrace this kind of idea today? An idea where there's no moral standard. Now, please note, I am not saying that unbelievers cannot do good, and I am thankful that there are many people who do not believe in God can do moral good, good deeds. I'm thankful for that. But what I am saying is that for the atheist, there is no good reason that they could tell me why they do those good things. As a Christian, I can say those things are good because God is telling me these things are good. But the fair question, if you're a skeptic, is that you can ask me is this, but Rob, just because God says these things are good, what does that mean? How do I know? Because I can't even trust them. And this is a valid point. But the reason I know these things are good, because he tells me, and I know these things are good, because of the character, they, they reflect the character and nature of God. You see, in Christianity, because God is perfect, 
and because of his nature being good, he can do good. I can trust anything that he commands is good because it is reflective of his very nature. For example, again, God uh, is love, therefore love is good. Mercy is good because God is merciful. Forgiveness is good because God is forgiving. And folks, these are all qualities that come out of this essence that we know uh, that a perfectly, we know a perfectly loving, just, and holy God because of the characteristics and the traits that he possesses. So God cannot command anything that is contrary to his nature or to who he is and contrary to his nature. So again, I know where morality comes from. So William Lane Craig has, again, said it this way. The morally good and bad are determined in reference to God's nature, and the morally right and wrong are determined by reference to his will. So here's a tough question, and this would be probably be worth a whole different uh, another show. If people are behaving according to their DNA, how do we punish them without any objective moral standard? We are punishing people for how nature has made them. That seems pretty harsh. If we are a part of time plus matter plus chance, and you're punished, being punished for that which I don't like the way you're behaving, you see, without God, one cannot say morality is objective. But each of us believe certain things are right and wrong, even if we disagree on what those things are. So let me ask you, if God does not exist, does objective morality exist? I don't think it does. You know, it's interesting that scientist and philosopher Alex Rosenberg, an atheist, has said this. He says, there is no such thing as right and wrong, and we need to be to the fact that nihilism is true. Nihilism tells us that moral judgments are all wrong. More exactly, it claims they are all based on false, groundless presuppositions. So, why do we need God to exist? Why do we need God to exist? Because if God doesn't exist, we need to drastically change how we look at life. We need to radically redefine who we are, which addresses our identity. We need to change our view on any significance to our existence, and we need to change where we get the whole idea of morality from. Because unbelievers get their identity, their meaning and their purpose and their morality, they get this from Christianity, and they don't even realize it. They are what Frank Turek says in his book, Stealing from God. They borrow from the Christian worldview all the time, and at the same time, they deny the very God who says these things are true. Amazing. So, with that said, I'm doing pretty good on time, but let me close with an interesting illustration. Let me wrap this up by taking us to John chapter 8. Many of us are very familiar with the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. If, aren't, if you're not familiar, the Pharisees had brought this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And if you go back into the Old Testament, they were to bring the man and the woman before the, before the lawgivers. Many of us remember this story 
as just the woman was brought to Jesus, but she was brought to Jesus in order to trap him. Remember that they brought the woman and there was no man, and as the law states, that the woman was to be stoned. But I don't know whether you realize it or not, what Jesus was actually set up in a trap by the Pharisees. So you're probably saying, all right, my pastor doesn't teach this. What was the trap? So the first scenario is don't stone her. Let's ignore the law. And, and of course, by doing that, God had set up a standard. But the Pharisees were not representing the standard. I hope you get that. But if Jesus does say, let's stone her, he is going to be in a lot of trouble. And of course, why is this so? Well, as you know, the Roman army was walking around the, uh, all around the temples, temple square. They were making sure that the Jews did not carry out any capital punishment that resulted in death. That authority was only for the Roman occupation. So in either case, Jesus was trapped. So Jesus starts writing on the ground, and then he stands up. And he looks at them and he says, Whichever of you is without sin, cast the first stone. And one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, the scriptures tell us, they dropped their stones and walked away. But what is happening here? See, you have to understand that in a shame-honor culture as that was, and our, as our culture is becoming, for any of those religious leaders to say that they had never done anything wrong would, to have, would be to have embarrassed themselves and brought shame to their families. So they were the ones who were trapped because they could not deny any wrongdoing. And in a society, the eldest set the example by dropping his stone first, and then the younger one would follow that example. So here's Jesus, left with the woman. And he asked her, where did everybody go? And her response was, I don't know, they've all left. And he tells her, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Now, the story is really fascinating because of what's going on here. First off, we have to ask ourselves, what's going on in the mind of the woman? She's very close to death. She's a woman in a society that doesn't see much value in her life. And here comes Jesus and tells her, tells her that she has value. To the woman who has confused her meaning, Jesus here stands up for her publicly and gives her back her identity. He gives her meaning and value by forgiving her and restoring her to relationship with him. Ultimately, this story is a story pointing to the cross because of what Jesus did by standing up for the woman. He took the anger directed at the woman and put the anger of the religious leaders on himself. He is taking on her shame. He knows the law. He knows the penalty of the law. And he is saying, I will take it upon myself and I will take your shame. You see, 
When you know your identity, you will understand the meaning and purpose of why you are here. And when you understand the meaning and purpose, you will then know the morality standard you need to follow because you will know in whom that it is that you find your ultimate fulfillment and your ultimate hope. You've been listening to the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg. This is a really, really tough subject. This is a subject that, um, that you and I need to understand. And if you have any questions, please email us at realissueapologetics at yahoo.com. You know, you may run into somebody who uh, has issues, issues or questions about the Christian faith, and they might ask you this question. Share this podcast with them on why do I need God. This has been a good time that we have had in answering this question, and I hope that you get something from it. Again, if you have any questions, email us at realissueapologetics at yahoo.com and let us know what you think. So as you go out this week, remember to be his ambassador. Remember to get to the gospel, but remember to listen to the person, to find out where they are at, to help break down those bushes, those, those walls, those barriers that they have in coming to uh, the faith, faith in Jesus. But more importantly, as you go out, you are the fifth gospel that people read. They won't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they will read you if they know you're a Christian. So as you go out, go out and give them heaven. Lord bless them.